Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of the magazine, How Might the U.S. Reboot Its Middle East Policy and Restore Confidence in American Power and Influence? And we are joined today by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Colonel Joseph Felter, a research fellow at Hoover as well as a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. Joe, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Troy. Good to be here. So the focus of your piece at Strategica is on the importance of knowing your enemy, specifically when it comes to radical Islam. And you can argue how long this war has been going on. I mean there's a decent case to be made that the other side was fighting it seriously a long time before we were. But there's no denying that after 9-11, the United States and our allies shifted to a less ambiguous war footing. In those intervening years, how, in your judgment, have we failed to know our enemy? What, what do you think we've gotten wrong? Well, I, I think you know. In, in the piece I mentioned, some, some sage words from Sun Tzu that you know, in any conflict, it's really important to know your enemy. And I, I think that in this case, we, we've we've recognized symptoms of of, of the, the the real uh, the real enemy that we're facing, uh, as far as you know, actual t- terrorists uh, that that um, we, we've. You know, many cases successfully targeted, but I think we failed to really understand the, the root causes of, that, that are driving our enemies to, to commit some of these atrocities and crimes around the world, and that's this hostile ideology that, that's motivating them, you know, these largely young men around the world, to, to leave their homes and travel to, to some of these areas in the Middle East and, and, and commit atrocities, uh, killing civilians in, in the process. Um, again, it's this hostile ideology that I think is, is the enemy that we're confronting and need to better understand. To that point, let me quote you to yourself here from Strategica. Quote, you cannot kill, capture, or incarcerate an idea, and it's the radicalizing ideas undergirding militant Islam that inspire misguided young men from around the world to attack the U.S. and its interests. The hostile Islamic extremist ideology is the root cause of the most serious threats we face in the Middle East and defines the nature of the war in which we've embarked, which of course I don't, I don't have to tell you, Joe, is inconvenient because we know how to blow up a munitions factory. It's not as clear that we know how to blow up ideological conviction. So how should we be thinking about going after a target that is as amorphous and as durable as what a huge chunk of people not only believe but believe as a matter of religious conviction? Sure, and I think you hit it, hit it on the head. Uh, you know, When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail and in the United States – we are very good at, at tracking down ter- terrorists and interdicting them and putting that, you know, proverbial warhead on a forehead, if you will, um, where it's deserved. But, but I think we're less capable of, of identifying and addressing, you know, this root cause, this hostile ideology. And the truth is, sadly, there, there's there's limitations on what the West, including the U.S., can can do to address this ideology. I think. The, the best way to address it is to identify those voices, you know, within Islam that that are discrediting and delegitimizing this hostile ideology, um, and those are voices that might resonate with some of these uh, radical adherents, and perhaps uh, convince them when they're logging on to to a, some radicalizing website, you know, somewhere in the world where they they've got a counter message that says, "Hey, this is not sanctioned in Islam." Maybe pick, pick it up and head into Syria to to, to commit uh, an atrocity and a suicide attack is not quite what what. Uh, my religion um, would sanction. 
You talk in your piece about the fact that even today, with the Cold War well behind us, we still know the iconic figures of, of communism. We know Marx, Engels, Stalin, uh, Khrushchev. But you argue that we don't really know the, the vast majority of the public and even a lot of policymakers, the corresponding figures in Islamism, that it's not necessarily Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri. So who are these figures and what do they tell us about the real threat from radical Islam? Well, there, there's a vast number. Many, many of them are, have long since passed away, you know, going back uh, you know, hundreds of years. Um, and I think the analogy of, uh, of you know, winning the Cold War by, by making concerted efforts to understand the ideology, I, th- I think is a valid uh, analogy to apply to today's threats. Uh, we, 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 we stood up entire disciplines to understand communism back during the Cold War. Um, our own Condoleezza Rice here at Hoover Institution is, was a notable Soviet scholar, for example. Um, we, we educated students, policymakers. We, we knew the nature of the enemy we faced. Again, to, to quote Sun Tzu and, and then Clausewitz, um, that, that's key to, to, to prevailing in a conflict. Um, I think we less, much less so have we made a concerted effort to understand this hostile ideology that's driving the, uh, you know, the current threat that we're facing. So this is kind of a call to, to make the same kind of concerted effort we, we took um, during the Cold War and, and apply it to, to the current threat. And, and there, there's, there's, there's thinkers and ideologues out there that are, are driving young men, largely young men uh, around the world to, to, to commit these atrocities. So it's important to understand what are these arguments. And, and, and they are, they're, they're online. Al-Qaeda it has an online library, if you will, where you can log on and find out the texts that these, 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 these young, I would say young men, it's, this, is, this is largely the demographic we're talking about, are, are, are reading and that are radicalizing them. So we need to read them. We need to understand what, what's driving them, and we need to uh, identify the opportunities to discredit and delegitimize this ideology. Let me ask you an admittedly ambitious question and, and one for which the answer almost certainly will come with qualifications. But I, I pose the same query to Joshua Moravchik, who is one of your fellow authors in this issue. Um, you write in your piece, quoting you here, to be clear, these radicalizing ideas are not sanctioned within mainstream Islam or maintained by the vast majority of Muslims. OK. You mentioned moderate voices a moment ago. When we talk about moderate Muslims, how optimistic are you that they have – both the numbers and the will necessary to be a meaningful counterbalance to the radicals. That's a great point, Troy, and that's that remains to be seen. Um, and but but again, the goal here is it's not it's not even necessary to find the moderate voices. There there are individuals out there that may share many of the same opinions and and that, that these these extremists share, you know, with regards to, to the United States involvement in the Middle East with, with, with Israel, with, with a number of issues. What, what's key, the key discriminator is that the, these individuals, the individuals that, that don't believe that you can kill innocents in the pursuit of these objectives. So, so you may be an extreme Salafist cleric that preaches consistently with, with everything these extremists believe, but, but, but say, hey, you can't quite go in and strap Exposes yourself and kill a bunch of civilians in the marketplace. That's not sanctioned by Islam. So, um, but but you're right. The numbers and the will. That, that's a challenge. And the, the challenge for the West is how to identify these voices and amplify them in a way that doesn't show the West hand. Because anything that's viewed to be a, you know, that the West is involved in is, is going to be immediately discredited by 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 and fall on deaf ears. Uh, but those arguments are out there. And if, if you read these texts. Uh, we, we did a, a detailed citation analysis of, of the most read jihadi Salafist texts when I was a, running a terrorism center at West Point. And we found ideas out there in the, in the open discourse, the open debate that, that discredited these, these extremists 
And it's finding those those arguments and finding a way to amplify them that doesn't show the West's hand, I think, is, is offers an opportunity to help discredit and, and delegitimize de- the, these ideas that are driving uh, young men to, to, to commit these atrocities. So let me give you, as we often do on this show, the, the policy question. You lay out the case that you've just made here about how important it is to, to understand these issues clearly. You make this case to the National Security Council and they say, OK, Colonel Felter, we're convinced – now help us operationalize this. What are the tangible steps that policymakers and military leaders can take to get our strategy closer to the kind of footing that you're talking about? So, you know, I think one thing is just an awareness of, of what the real nature of, of the challenge is here. I think, you know, our comfort zone, I think, is addressing symptoms. You know, we, we are very good and very adept at, at projecting the types of power, you know, leveraging modern technology, drones, um, intelligence resources of addressing these, these, these symptoms. But the, uh, I think it's raising awareness that we've really got to complement these efforts. I'm not saying we, we need to keep put, keeping the pressure up on the, on these terrorists, but we need to, to, to look at the root, root causes and make sure we're, we're making the kinds of investments that allow us to address these root causes. And this could be really long-term. I mean, again, I, I think this is a threat that's going to be like, like crime. It's, it's going to be a challenge, a threat we're going to have to manage more effectively going forward. I don't think we're ever going to win this war, if you will, um, but we can do much better. And one of the key steps, I think, is, again, raising awareness and then funding the types of activities that help us better understand this, this enemy. You, you, the, the same types of programs that were stood up in our top universities around the country that helped us understand communism, let's, let's have similar programs that help us understand the, the nature of this new and pernicious hostile ideology that we're facing uh, the, t- today and going forward. Are there institutional factors that you would point to both on the military side and on the civilian side that that lead to this tendency to focus on the, the symptoms instead of the underlying cause? Are, are there things that we could do on an organizational basis that would pull us away from that mindset? Well, and again, as, as I mentioned earlier, it, we, when you're a hammer, a lot of problems look like a nail. We, we, right. we are we're, – we're, we know what we're good at and we tend to – you know, I know having served in the military uh, for, for, for a while uh, prior to coming to Stanford – Boy, that that's tended to what we gravitate towards. We're, we're, we're good at that. No one, there's no one's better than the you know than the United States Joint Special Operations Command and and the related organizations that going out and finding these these evildoers and and interdicting them. But um, institution, I think we we have to take take the long ball look. We have to appreciate that while we're out there cutting the grass, if you will, we've got to make these efforts to to find the roots and understand what what is in the realm of the possible for, for us to do unilaterally with our allies and. and what are some things that we're going to need to encourage in, you know, individuals, groups, and organizations that we may not want to normally work with at most levels and may not even be working with in this case? Again, sometimes the, the discrediting and delegitimizing ideas out there are, are being made and in Friday sermons by, by, by what we might call radical salafist clerics who, who uh, agree with almost everything that, jihad, that these extremists agree with, but maybe they differ on that one key point, is, and that is that it's not sanctioned to kill innocents in the pursuit of, of, of these objectives. It, it's not sanctioned, and you know, all, all the, uh, the trappings of, of, of becoming a martyr are not going to go to individuals that, that, that participate in, and use those tactics. So fi- final question. Play this forward for me. What does the conflict with radical Islam look like in, in five or ten years' time, and what are the variables that you think are going to determine that? Well, great question. I, again, I think there, there still will be a threat, um, but I, I think – you know, going back to the analogy of the Cold War, of the many things we did, I think we helped encourage an internal implosion of, of communism as, as as its fault lines and inconsistencies were exposed. I think a lot of the a lot of the solution 
to, to addressing this problem effectively going forward the next five years is trying to identify and help encourage the, a similar implosion within Islam. I, I think you know certain self policing um, and, and accountability within Islam itself. I think it, again. Efforts directly attributed to the West are going to fall largely on deaf ears. We're going to have to find those voices and those arguments um, and somehow help encourage in an appropriate way uh, a self-policing and accountability for, from within Islam itself. And, and that's, that's pretty, pretty tough to do, but we, we need to invest the resources and make the concerted efforts to really address these, these root causes. Why we continue to address the symptoms if we don't hit the, hit the root causes where we can, the, the, the symptoms will keep popping up. All right. My guest has been Colonel Joseph Felter, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as a senior research scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Joe, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Troy. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hansen.